Welcome back to Game of Our Lives. I'm David Goldblatt, and with me, as ever, are Al Jazeera journalist Tony Caron and our producer, Roger Shah. Hello, David. Ready to go. Hello, David. Good to have you with us, guys. Now, of course, the World Cup is happening in Russia. But as we keep saying, the World Cup is really happening everywhere else in the world, in the public spaces, in the television rooms, in people's homes. So a little bit later, we're going to be hearing from some of our favourite guests from Season 1, bringing a global perspective on the World Cup. We'll be speaking to Supriya Naya, who's calling in from Mumbai, and Godwin Enakena, who will be telling us about the vibes in Lagos ahead of the big game, Argentina versus Nigeria. But first, today is a very special day. Not only is the temperature higher in Bristol, England than Los Angeles, California, but England, yes, England, are coming off the back of a 6-1 victory over Panama. Tony, what did you make of that game? Well, I had to be absolutely thrilled for you. Absolutely. and <laughs> Very you know, decent. I, very decent of you, old man. Jolly good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll, 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 I'll give you that. I mean, look. I think what this is, is a brilliant exposition of the value of zero expectations. England goes to the World Cup, nobody expects anything. You have some pretty decent young players, and that team just played with a sense of freedom and relaxation. It was just like, Southgate said, go out and enjoy yourselves, and they did. You know, I think it is about expectation, but, you know, call me an old hippie, I think it's also a little bit about love and their disposition and their demeanour, as well as the low expectations, I think has made it much easier to like this team. I did worry, though, I have to say, a lot of giving the ball away. A lot of giving the ball away. One does wonder what will happen when they meet a team that's a little bit more serious than Panama. It was also a very violent game. Violent? I was worried about poor Harry Kane. Uh, the Panamanians, how many yellow cards were there in that one? Uh, not enough, but there were a lot of yellow cards. And it was good to see some penalties given for, you know, outrageous rugby-style tackles. I mean, I thought the great thing for me was to see how the England team just brushed all that stuff off. I mean, Jesse Lingard gets an elbow in the face after a minute and he just doesn't let it affect him. I thought it was, you know, the cliches, let your boots do the talking. And so they did. The other big match over the last few days for me was Germany versus Sweden. And there was the delicious possibility that Germany might, might just be going into the final game of their group with none. One point would have been stupendous. And then right at the end of stoppage time, the inevitable, Tony. How did you experience that Tony Cruz free kick? Well, that Tony Cruz free kick was amazing. I mean, it was a, a Cristiano Ronaldo moment. And, you know, some people suggest that these guys play for Real Madrid. They kind of expect to win everything no matter what. So, you know, they step, he steps up with that real certainty. But what that game was about for me was that moment where your sense of football tradition, football law comes into conflict with your political and moral beliefs. Elaborate on that for us, Tony. Well, there's tremendous schadenfreude, what a brilliant German word, <laughs> associated with the idea, as you say, Germany's going to go out. We are finally going to upend Gary Lineker's maxim that football is a game played by 22 players chasing a ball around the field and then Germany wins. Well, this time you were like, wait, this may not happen and that's fantastic. We're upending the established order. But I did start to think, particularly watching Boateng, running around the field like a man possessed. Here's a centre-back who's playing as a number eight. I mean, he's playing as a box-to-box midfielder. 
desperately trying to take matters into his own hands and change this game. And you're thinking to yourself, yes, of course, because the far right in Germany is going to blame the immigrants for any upset here. If that team goes out, it's going to be put on the Turkish players, the players of African descent. And therefore, getting behind this Germany team is important because it's about inclusion. Let's turn our attention to two teams who really have got problems and one wonders what kind of homecoming they're going to receive. Today we saw the Red Sea derby, which you advocated we watch. Egypt, Saudi Arabia, both teams having played pretty poorly up to now. Did they do anything to redeem themselves before they go home? No. Not really. As a football spectacle, it was not very interesting or inspiring. But I think the political dimension of this is interesting. The Egyptian regime would have loved a more successful World Cup because a World Cup really makes a population, a nation, feel good about themselves. And right now, the Sisi regime in Egypt is not offering people very much by way of reason to feel good about themselves. So what this result does actually is leave Egypt stuck in the political and economic squalor that is prevailed since the coup. And in that sense, there's not going to be a Salah dividend for general turned president Sisi. So, you know, politically, this World Cup has not helped the Egyptian regime. I think for Mohamed Salah personally, when we've been following that story, you know, you really get that sense of him being always manhandled by thugs. What do you make then of the stories, and they are no more than rumour at this stage, that he has or is considering quitting the Egyptian national team after this? It's difficult to say. We don't have any confirmation of those, but you looked at his body language in that game today and he was miserable. He didn't even smile when he scored. And, you know, you have to think the Egyptian FA has not protected him. Khadirov drags him out of bed and makes him turn up for a photo opportunity with a strong man who's basically known for accused of torturing his opponents, accused of terrorizing the gay men of Chechnya. He's just an all-round, you know, nasty piece of work. Khadirov, the president of the Chechen Republic, yeah? Yeah, Salah is forced to hang out with this guy and be hailed as an honorary Chechen citizen and so on. And you're like, where is the Egyptian FA? And by the way, where is FIFA with its, its insistence of keeping politics out of things? How is Salah not protected from this kind of activity and behaviour, exploitation. Answers on a postcard, Gianni Infantino. Roger, have you been watching any of the football? Well, I mean, also, I will say, you know, uh, Tony, you predicted that the Red Sea Derby would be worth watching. David, your what to watch from last time around was Serbia-Switzerland, and you nailed it. I mean, that ended up being one of the most talked about matches of the last few days. All of a sudden, people are breaking down videotapes of hand gestures. Uh, As you had pointed out, it's the Swiss team that has actually quite a contingent of players from all sorts of backgrounds, including some ethnic Albanians from Kosovo. Can you guys explain what actually happened? Tony, you you give this one a roll. Okay. Well, the former Yugoslav Republic of Switzerland, as we call it, has always had a strong contingent of players from particularly Bosnia and Kosovo, which, as we know, were pretty brutalized by the Serbs during the, the wars of the breakup of Yugoslavia. So what we saw in this match was twice when the two goals Switzerland scored were scored by Kosovar Albanian ethnic players. That would be Granit Xhaka of Arsenal and it, um, Shakiri. Jordan Shakiri. Jordan Shakiri. Jordan Shakiri of Stoke. So, in both cases, when they scored those goals against, you know, the old enemy, Serbia, they ran at the cameras, crossed their fists, and made the gesture of an eagle, which is a signal to 
everyone who understands the Balkan politics of the Albanian flag, the double-headed eagle. And indeed, and- the notion of a greater Albania. I mean, it's stronger than that, isn't it, Tony? It's not just saying we love Albania. This is saying we are behind the greater Albanian project, which envisages a situation where all ethnic Albanians end up in an Albanian state. And certainly that Kosovo, which is now majority Albanian, is not part of Serbia. And that is very contested. 2008, Kosovo declares independence. Many countries in the world recognise its independence. Many don't. Serbia, obviously, is one of those. And it's worth remembering, you know, the eagle has appeared at football in the Balkans before. So you go back to 2010 when Serbia are playing Italy in uh, Genoa in a World Cup qualifier. And they burn a huge Albanian flag in the stands, number one. Number two, a couple of years back, Serbia are playing Albania in Belgrade in a World Cup qualifier. Some Albanian dude gets hold of a drone and flies the drone above the stadium with like a kind of six foot long Albanian double-headed eagle flag, then lowers the damn thing onto the pitch. One of the Serbs grabs the flag to try and take it away, then two Albanian try and get the flag back off him then a fight begins then you've got ultra-nationalist hooligans in the crowd who start storming the pitch and attempting to attack the Albanians as they try and take the flag off the game is cancelled it's a crazy video if you Um, haven't seen it you can find it on the Guardian's website so you know there, there is this whole what's worth remembering here again it's not just the uh, Kosovo Albanians in the Swiss team who were playing symbolic politics here. In the opening game, Serbia beat Costa Rica and the foreign minister Dasic makes a big deal of this saying, this is sweet revenge. Right, which is for the folks back home. And what that means is Costa Rica is one of the first countries to recognise an independent Kosovo, much to the chagrin and annoyance of ultranationalists in Serbia. And so beating them becomes this political point scoring. So it's like the Serbs complain and the Serbs say, oh, FIFA, this is politics. And then these dudes are playing politics themselves, right? Of course. And also the Serbs are, are really channeling the what we could call the Milosevic narrative, which is Serbia's always being victimized by referees, by FIFA, by, you know, it's all always like poor little Serbia. But the wars for the breakup of Yugoslavia were intimately connected with football. Like literally political divisions and tensions are growing, but it's a Belgrade Zagreb derby that really kicks off the violence, that basically there's this absolute chaotic riot in which you basically have Serb police clashing with Croatian players and you know this is the moment that kicks off real hostilities not that they wouldn't have happened without the football obviously I mean remember this is now what coming up for 20 years ago and the real legacy of this of course is that you have you know a deep and intimate association in Serbia also in Croatia but particularly in Serbia between football ultras and you know ultranationalist and right wing politicians being called out on the streets as muscle so in that case in 2008 when Kosovo declares independence There are attacks all over Belgrade on the embassies of countries who are um, recognising Kosovo and who's at the front of all of those crowds. Football ultras from Partizan and Red Star. And this is really interesting. This is where social media is so amazing that you can pick this stuff up now. People in Serbia are picking out in the audience at the Switzerland game that the president's son is there. And the president's son is there with a group of Partizan Belgrade ultras. 
And what are they wearing? T-shirts with a map of Kosovo on them and the um, words no surrender. Now, I think Serbia are really going to be struggling. I mean, if Switzerland get busted, wow, what are they going to do to Serbia on the politics and football issue? It's it's kind of ridiculous. We know that FIFA has these rules that ban political gestures and that they're taking this action. That's what this game is all about. It's about a proxy for the very idea of the nation. And for that reason, of course, all nations have political histories. All nations have enemies. And when you play the old enemy, you are watching a ritual reenactment that offers you the prospect of some kind of vindication. That's why people are watching this game in their billions all over the world. So for FIFA to kind of pretend, oh, there's no politics here, is frankly ridiculous. We're talking politics and football today. We're talking the World Cup in the rest of the world. So the perfect guest for that is Supriya Nair. She's a journalist from Mumbai, a keen observer and writer on football and politics. And you may remember her from season one. I wanted to know, what's it like to be an obsessive football fan in India? And who do you back when you haven't got a horse in the race? We spoke on Skype a couple of days ago, late night in Mumbai. Supriya, welcome back to the show. Thanks, David. I'm really happy to be back and delighted to be talking about football, which seems to be the only meaningful thing left in the world. <laughs> For the first time in years, it feels like football is fun again. Who's been bringing you fun and joy at this World Cup? All the Asian and African teams and surprisingly Russia, which I didn't expect those were not words I expected to be saying at the start of the tournament. <laughs> no, I don't think anybody very much expected to be uh, hearing it. Indeed. So like 19th century Russian mystics, I'm choosing to see Russia as an Asian team rather than a European one. OK, that'll go. That, it'd be interesting to know how that would go down in Russia. That's an interesting view on it, but I like it. When we last spoke, AC Milan was very much part of the conversation. You're very much <laughs> a fan and a connoisseur of Italy. But of course, Italy aren't with us at this World Cup. So I wonder, where are you hanging your hat in this tournament at the moment? Gosh, if Italy were with us, we'd probably have seen a nil-nil scoreline before this. <laughs> <laughs> Too true. I'm very happy to say that I've been more neutral at this World Cup than I've been at any other one I've seen in my life. And what great performances we've seen from underdogs, from big teams and horror shows from teams that we expected to do well. So it's all going down. And in fact, I think this is the lovely thing about the World Cup, right? The group stages are indeed the World Cup, to paraphrase something you memorably said once, it's where we all, as peoples of the world, get to see each other. Sure, Japan, Senegal, Colombia, you know, right. you don't get a mix like that too often in this world. Let's talk a little bit about the Asian teams. Sure, Saudi Arabia and South Korea have been really deeply disappointing. Who's been good for you? Who's cheered you amongst the Asian teams? I'm not going to say that South Korea has been a total disappointment. Once you've gotten it out of your head that a team you like is going to go all the way, which you have to off necessity, I think, as an, as an Asian fan at this point. You know, there are lots of small things to take joy in. And the funny thing about loving these Asian teams is that the idea of Asian solidarity itself in 2018 is such a weird one. This continent doesn't have the history of Latin American solidarity or Pan-Africanism th that others do. And look at our, our representatives in this tournament. It's Iran and Saudi Arabia and South Korea and Japan. 
not exactly models of fraternal cooperation. <laughs> <laughs> but and at the two ends of the continent, you know, in the Far East and the Far West. And as you say, the whole idea, you know, culturally, politically, it's hard beyond the AFC, the Asian Football Confederation, to find, you know, what's holding this whole thing together. Uh, tea, rice, genocide. <laughs> <laughs> you must have been enjoying Iran, no? Iran have been heartening. I'm nervous for their game against Portugal, which is their last match. But it's it's like I think I, the great thing about Japan, South Korea, and Iran has been how nimble and and crafty they've been physically as teams. Obviously, each in very different ways. But to see that kind of strength mentally as well as physically has been really lovely. The enormously cheering thing about the last couple of weeks has been the optimism that these teams have kind of held their own amongst often quite superior opposition and the hope that things will get better. God, I mean, I can't wait for Iraq, which has sort of consistently been decent in top flight AFC football, to just make it to qualifying and play in the United States of America in 2026. Now you are talking. Uh, David, I have a question for you. Your writing has been on my mind ever since this tournament has begun and we've been getting to the bottom of the difficult question of how to reconcile the authoritarian nationalism and the feeling of joy that the World Cup brings us. Do you really feel like this is still a massive project of normalisation for Russia? I think it is a massive project of normalisation and one that's working pretty well. I imagine that Vladimir Putin is rubbing his hands with glee. You know, the spectacle itself is splendid. The police are on holiday allowing a transformation of public space, you know, vacation time in Russian cities. But it doesn't take that much to look beyond the bubble. There are calls for protests uh, over pension reform, which the government has slipped in while the uh, World Cup is going on in non-World Cup cities. You know, and there are constant forms of disruption and intervention. I mean, however one feels about Albanian nationalism, the fact that these games have become this extraordinary public theatre for expressing issues of identity and contestation amongst Croats, Serbs, Albanians and Kosovans constantly disrupts the narrative of this is just normal and everything is fine with the world. So I think there is a kind of tension there. And I think there are also emerging... You know, as stories of resistance and personal triumph amongst players and teams that, you know, offer a kind of alternative vision on the world. So my cynicism dials pretty high, but it's not actually off the scale. There's still room. And, you know, there's also just I don't know how you're feeling, but I'm really feeling the need for some joy in this world. Hmm, I see. I have to say, though, I think, again, that the group stages are a great time for us to remember that this game of competing nationalisms and this game among nations is also really the people's game. And so in spite of the fact that I myself live in a country where majoritarianism is taking the joy out of ordinary civic patriotism and replacing it with something more toxic every day, I get it. I get why Egyptians and Tunisians and Panamanians are crying when they hear their anthem in the stadium. And that has been amazing, hasn't it? Yeah, I celebrate that. I mean, Panamanians, you know, <laughs> it is, you realise, particularly if you live in a country where, you know, you're pretty regular attenders at the World Cup, what a big deal it is to be on the stage. How much it matters that football should function as a public stage to say, hey, we exist. <laughs> Indeed. Supriya, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, David. You can follow Supriya on Twitter at Supriya N. That's S U P 
S-U-P-R-I-Y-A-N. S-U-P-R-I-Y-A-N. Tony, it's time to move to Nigeria. And today, in what is officially Season 1 Nostalgia Fest, we are bringing back an old favourite for our segment, What to Watch. What what to to watch? Watch. What 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 to watch? So Nigeria managed to beat Iceland 2-0. Argentina are playing badly. They're up against each other on Tuesday. A loss for either team will send them out. Both can still make it through to the round of 16. But instead of me telling you about it, I want to hear what's going on in Nigeria. So I'm going to hand what to watch over to the wondrous Godwin Enekena. He's a journalist, a broadcaster and the sporting director of Mountain and Fire of Miracles Football Club, a Pentecostal church-based team that made its way to the top of the Nigerian domestic leagues. He's in Lagos and I talked to him a couple of days ago on Skype. Godwin, when I last spoke to you, I asked you, how will Nigeria do at this World Cup? And you said to me, ask me after the first game. So Nigeria had their first game. They lose to Croatia 2-0. Tell me, how did you feel about Nigeria's chances once you'd watched it? Well, truth be told, the reason I asked you to pop that question again after the game against Croatia was because I knew it was going to be a difficult game. And I looked at the team that we have at this moment, um, looking for a leader. You know, I couldn't find any in big game situations like that. So, yes, what I expected was what I saw. And then what what changed it around then, Godwin? Because they came out looking like a different team. They beat Iceland 2-0. And they're looking good. So, what changed? What did we change? I think we knew that we had our backs against the wall. If we didn't beat Iceland, we should be packing our backs and baggage and back to Nigeria. That's if we allow them to come back to Nigeria, if you know what I'm talking about. So, I think that was the secret. We needed to beat Iceland. Yes, we won the battle, but the war continues, and the war that continues is on Tuesday against Argentina. And how do you rate Nigeria's chances? Because this is a very, very disappointing Argentina, isn't it? Uh, David, I will not put my smart money on Nigeria beating Argentina. That's the truth. Messi is blooded. Argentina not winning a game at the World Cup will be disastrous. For Nigeria, what do we stand to lose? Do we have what it takes? Are we going to have the kind of opportunities that Iceland presented? It is difficult. Like I said, I've seen so much of football. It's going to be very, very difficult. That much I can tell you. We have met them four times at the World Cup and they've always beaten us. We've never beaten Argentina. Anytime Lionel Messi is playing. If we don't have Messi, then Nigeria will win. That much I can tell you. We cannot wait to celebrate. Uh, fridges have been stopped. That game is 7 p.m. Nigerian time. So we're going to dance and sing into the wee hours of the night. That is if we win. And we believe that we can win. Fingers crossed, Godwin. It's been fantastic to speak to you. Ideally hope Nigeria go deep enough in this tournament that we can have this conversation all over again. Something is telling me, David, that... Uh, we might just do it. You can follow Godwin on Twitter at GNAKENA. That's G-E-N-A-K-H-E-N-A. David, I was hoping you would ask Godwin about those Nigerian jerseys. They are extremely popular, have been flying off the shelves, and now, as a result, these fake jerseys are proliferating on the streets of Lagos. Uh, and there's actually even a song about it. Have you guys heard this? I've heard of the song, but I haven't heard it. 
It's called Fake Jersey. It's by Tenny, a Nigerian musician and social media star. Play it, Roger Shaw. It begins with the story of her disappointing trip to the Nike store. I go to Nike website. They said the don't sell out. Yeah. I call it makeup. And now we hear about an extended negotiation with a fellow named Emeka. Uh, it's a straight up jam. You should check it out. <laughs> I love it. Nike got plenty money and uh, and good on Lagos. Get that jersey out. And better still, I'd like to see everybody in the fedoras. The team have got an official kind of white suit and fedora with green band look. And um, while the Senegalese are definitely doing the best dancing of the African teams, no one is topping Nigeria when it comes to sartorial elegance. Gentlemen, ladies, everybody out there, we are coming to the end. The group stage is almost over. No more three games a day. So, let's get out of here and enjoy it while we can. This show is a production of Al Jazeera's Jetty Studios. It was recorded at the Soundtown Studios in Bristol, UK. Music is by Bang Data. Subscribe to the show if you haven't already at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, please, at Game of Our Lives. It just remains for me to say thank you, Tony Karen. Thank you, Al. Thank you, Roger Shah, our man at the dials. Thanks, David. I'm David Goldblatt, and we'll see you on Friday. Well, I mean, if you commit a crime in front of a police officer, at some point they have to arrest you. Oh, Roger, your faith but... in the system is charming. <laughs>